All right, if you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. So Revelation's a good, strong word about how God makes himself known to us, and then the Bible ends with the book of Revelation. And by the way, you guys have done an amazing job of cutting the S off the end of Revelation and not saying Revelations, and so the Bible ends with the Revelation of God's victory through Jesus Christ, and we are looking at the seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three. Last week, uh, we looked at verses one through seven, so this week we're in Revelation chapter two, and we're gonna look at verses eight through 11, looking at that second letter there. Uh, so last week when we were looking at the church at Ephesus, we were talking about the seven wonders of the ancient world, and somebody yelled out that one of the ancient wonders there at uh, Ephesus was the Temple of Diana, and I just kind of skipped past it and mentioned the Temple of Artemis. Well, they're the same thing, uh, Diana and Artemis, so whoever yelled that out last week was correct. And then I kind of made a snarky comment about education. Let me just apologize for that. Uh, I never want anyone to feel like to come into a worship service, especially a worship service at Emmaus, that they have to have a certain level of education or know certain things. I know I said it kind of offhandedly, but, but do hear my heart on that, that we don't want to pretend like we have to have it all together, or that you have to have a certain level of education to be able to engage with God's word, because that's simply not, simply not the case. And so uh, I apologize for, for coming off like that. I didn't, didn't intend that at all. But we're going to continue to go this morning looking at those letters to the seven, seven churches there. We're going to read verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, so some of the translations that you have in front of you maybe look a little different in your phone or, or the Bible in front of you. Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading of his word. So have you ever thought to yourself, as you thought about another person or a group of people, I just don't have anything in common with those people. Uh, this happens when you do couples dating, so the wife really gets along with the other wife, but you and the other husband, just crickets, like nothing's happening there, you, you have nothing in common with that other guy. Sometimes this happens with churches. People walk into a church and they think, ah, man, I just don't connect there. I don't seem to have anything in, in common with them. Last Sunday, Father's Day, a brilliant Father's Day because you had the U.S. Open, the College World Series, and the NBA Finals, and they say there's no God. How great is that, that you would get those three events on, on Father's Day? So the U.S. Open begins, and Dustin Johnson hits a 378-yard drive on the first hole. I'd have to be downhill, downwind, and hit the cart path 
for it to go 378. I, I have nothing in common with that. I, I can't relate to that. Then you watch the NBA Finals, and the only time in my entire life that I could ever imagine rooting for LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers was last Sunday night, and he makes the game-saving block, runs the distance of the court, jumps 11 feet in the air. I couldn't do that in an elementary basketball game. I have nothing in common. You, you just look at that and you think, that's incredible, and I can't relate to that at all. So last week, we looked at the church at, church at Ephesus, and we said about that church at Ephesus, the first seven verses of Revelation 2, we have a lot in common with that church. If you missed last week, sermons are always online, but if you don't have time to go back and watch, if you just read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you don't need a preacher to be able to make application to life in the 21st century and being a part of Emmaus Baptist Church. It was crystal clear. But then you get to this church this week, the Church of Smyrna, and you're going to find out pretty quickly, we don't have as much immediately in common with the Church of Smyrna. And if we're not careful, because we don't have as much in common with them, we can immediately think, well, that's not as relevant to us. Maybe I don't really need to listen to that. But don't forget the way God's word works, because God's word sometimes speaks directly into your situation. You read it and think, that's me. Other times, God's word works in such a way that he gives you his word, preparing you for something that's going to come later in life, something that's going to come down the road. Or he gives you your word, his word so that you read that, and you think, that may not be for me but I know that that applies to another brother or sister in another part of the world, and I need to hear this word so that I will understand that other person's situation. So God's word is gonna work in that way this morning because the church at Smyrna is a church that is facing intense persecution. Intense persecution. We're gonna talk about that word in a, in a few minutes, but there's a little bit of debate about how much persecution the church in America faces, and is that a word we should use as we think about being Christians and being a church in America? And I'll just lay my cards on the table early with you and say that we probably need to be very careful using that word persecution as we think about being the church in, in America. Uh, in some sense, when we use that word in reference to ourselves, it demeans or takes away from what brothers and sisters around the world are really experiencing. And when you're cut off in traffic because you have a Christian fish sticker on your car, that's probably not persecution. Uh, that's probably not what we need to think of. Ralph Waldo Emerson has a great quote. He says, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. Being contradicted, having someone disagree with you, having someone, that's, that's probably not what we think of when we think of persecution. The reason you got cut off in traffic is because you were driving with your blinker on for three miles in the wrong lane. That's why you got cut off in traffic. So you'll notice, strategically, we don't have those Emmaus Church decals. Those have been requested quite a bit. There's a reason we don't give you Emmaus Church decals for your vehicle. You see those wonderful people? If you would like a church decal, go down the road to Life Church and get one of their decals and put that on your vehicle. Now, we love the people at Life Church. Good, good, good people, good friends down there. But, but we don't give decals out because we know how you drive. And that's just a repudiation of the name of Jesus. The point being, cut off in traffic is not persecution. 
But there is a such a thing as persecution, and we need to know what that looks like, and we're going to find out pretty quickly that it does have quite a bit to say to our lives and to our situation. So we jump in here at verse 8. Verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now think this week, hopefully I improved from last week, and there should be a picture on the screen of where these seven churches are, are located. So if you kind of look over here, this area, all of this area is essentially modern day Turkey. And we started over here last week in Ephesus, and essentially the order of these letters kind of goes in a circle. So this was Ephesus, and then you move up to Smyrna, just, just above it. It was about 40 miles or so north of Ephesus, and they were rivals, so to speak, trying to see who would be the one to get the best temple, or who would be the one to have the best relationship with Rome. And so these places were, were in relationship. All Smyrna got out of the deal was the better name. Uh, so you kids that are in here who are fifth grade and under and don't always sit in the worship service with us except during the summer. You guys have done a great job this summer. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something fun here, okay? There's few words in Scripture as fun to say as Smyrna, all right? So not the big kids in the room, but just the little kids in the room. I want you to give me your funniest, craziest, best voice for the word Smyrna, okay? All right, you ready? One, two, three. Oh, my word. That's awesome. So uh, if you don't remember anything else this morning, you're going to remember the church that this letter was written to. It was written to the church at Smyrna, as most of you just said. So uh, that was awesome. The church at Smyrna is located just north of Ephesus there. Here's what you need to know about the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was an area where the worship of the emperor was beginning to take place. You have this Roman power, this Roman ideology with the emperor, and people are beginning to give worship to the government. They're beginning to give worship to this emperor, seeing him as a divine figure. And so those who believe in Jesus Christ are facing this really difficult relationship here. But Jesus always prepares his people for trouble. On your bulletin, on the back where the notes are located, the first point is even though this is a church that's facing persecution, Jesus always prepares his people for trouble. Here's how he does it. He reveals to them who he is. So in verse 8, it says, The first and the last, who is dead and has come to life. When it says the first and the last, it's picking up language from the book of Isaiah that was used in reference to Yahweh, God. You find that same wording in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, which is going to be on the screen. If you were to back up in your Bible a few verses, it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. That same language by which Jesus was revealed in chapter 1 becomes the foundation for this church in chapter 2 to be able to stand up against these attacks. Theology is always practical. Here's what I mean by that. One of the ways that God gives us to be able to deal with the things that come at us in life is by telling us who he is. 
And when we know that he is the first and the last, when we know that he is the alpha and the omega, that means that he was before whatever problem you're facing in life, and he will still be the same after that problem in life. Which, if you watch the news very much, or you have a Facebook account, is very good news. To know that he is the first and the last, he is the alpha and the omega, he is God. And then it goes on to the next phrase, he's not just the first and the last, but in verse 8 it says, he who was dead and has come to life. So he's not a God who stays far away from us, he's a God who came to us. And he died with us and for us in our place, but didn't remain dead, he came back to life. So he was dead and he is alive. This is the foundation for everything. So he's God and he's human. And then look at the beginning of verse nine. It says, I know your tribulation. Now that phrase there at the beginning of verse nine, if you underline the phrase, I know, that phrase, I know, or something like it, will show up in all of these seven letters. So if you scroll through your phone or scroll through your Bible in chapters two and three, seven different times you're gonna find the phrase, I know, at the beginning of these letters. What it's telling us is God is intimately, intimately knowledgeable about what is happening in your life. I know what's going on in your church, I know what's going on in your life, and I'm with you in this. So he prepares his people for trouble by saying, I'm God, but I became man so that I could die for you, and then I came back to life, and I didn't forget you, I am with you always, and we see that played out through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's how God prepares his people for trouble. This word here, where it says, I know your tribulation, back in verse nine it says, I know your tribulation, that word tribulation, if you're reading out of another translation, it may say affliction, or it may say sufferings, or it may say distress, something like that, it's a word that has to do with putting a pressure or a weight on someone. Uh, so when you were younger and you fought with your siblings and you sat on them or wrestled with them and pressed them into the ground, that type of pressure from something or someone else against you, that's a tribulation. Tribulation becomes kind of a famous word in the book of Revelation, and we'll come back to it at a later time. But right here, they don't have to wait 2,000 years for tribulation. They're not waiting for something out there called the Great Tribulation. They are facing tribulation right in front of them. And in their case, it comes as persecution. In our case, it's going to come as many different types of suffering and hardship in your life. I don't know what that looks like, but we all go through that because we're human, because we live in this world. There's going to be some type of affliction, some type of tribulation that you're going to face in life. But Jesus always sustains his people through trouble. He prepares his people for trouble by telling us who he is, and then he always sustains his people through trouble. And in your notes, there are four different ways that he does this. Here's how he does it. The first is even though we are poor, we're actually rich. Jesus offers true riches. Look there in verse nine. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, Poverty there refers to literal, literal poverty. It's talking about a group of people 
that because they're Christians and because they live in this area where people are worshiping the Roman Empire and worshiping the emperor and having to give allegiance there, because they won't play the government game, because they won't give worship to the emperor, they're losing out financially. They're becoming poor because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know you're suffering financially, but you're actually rich. Now, if we're not careful there, that feels a little bit disingenuous. If if somebody comes up to you and you're in a bad financial situation in life and they say, you know what? I know you're poor, but you're actually rich. How much does that help? It makes you just want to hit them and say, no, you don't know. I really am poor, and I'm still poor, even though you said that I'm, I'm rich. It starts to feel like this weird naming and claim it idea. If you just claim that you're rich, then you really will be rich. That's not what Jesus is doing in, in this verse. He's doing something very different than that. What he's doing then, to them is he's saying, you are poor financially, and I know that, but you have a different type of riches. You have a different type of wealth, a different type of treasure than you would ever know of on this earth. So let's look at some verses that help us understand this. In James chapter two, there's a verse there that helps us get started. James chapter two, verse five, it says, listen my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So the book of James gives us a picture of a group of people who are poor financially but they're rich in another way and James says that they are rich in faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6. 1 Timothy 6:6 6, 6 says, "Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world." 1 Timothy 6 says you may be poor financially, but godliness is of great riches. Godliness is of great gain. And then probably the verse that's the best foundation for this concept is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that he is God, that he had all of the glory of heaven, though he, is rich, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave up all of that wealth, all of that glory of heaven to become human in order that he might take on our pain, he might take on our poverty so that we could become rich in him. Now there's a form of theology that sneaks up on a verse like this, and it's something that's usually called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel goes like this. If you'll trust in Jesus and maybe send a little bit of money to this particular ministry organization, God's going to pour out blessings on you. And you're going to be richer and wealthier than you could ever imagine. You're going to receive back this wealth. Not only is that a sham, but that's a complete rejection of everything that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. Never are we told in Scripture that if we give ourselves fully to Jesus Christ, that in response we're going to get worldly wealth and worldly riches. You just don't find that. What you find in the church at Smyrna is not, hey, I know you're poor, but if you'll send a little bit of ministry to the apostle, or a little bit of money to the apostle John, then you're going to be wealthy. You don't get that. You don't see that anywhere in Scripture. 
what you do find is trust in me because you have, through Christ, a level of wealth and riches that goes far beyond anything that this world could ever offer you. So Jesus says, I know you're poor, but I have riches for you. Then the second thing, the second thing that happens in this verse is they are slandered, but Jesus is truth. They are slandered, but Jesus sustains them through that slander by telling them that he is truth. Look back there at verse nine. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and I also know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So what's happening in this verse? Not only are these people poor, but people in this area of Smyrna are slandering, are speaking out against the Christians, speaking badly of them in public. And more than that, what it seems like this verse is pointing to is people in the area are handing over the Christians to the government authorities so that they're going to be persecuted. There's a word for this, usually it's called an informer, someone who goes to their boss or goes to the authority and says, hey, you need to go check out this person. I think they're doing this wrong. I think they're in the wrong. How is this happening? So here's how this works. In the Roman Empire, the Jews were exempt from having to give worship to the emperor. The Jews were considered to be a special class of people, and they were not required to do some of the other things that the people in the Roman Empire were required to do. The Christians, at the very beginning of the Christian movement, they were Jews, almost all of them. And so they fit under this exception clause. They weren't required to do certain things because they were, lapped, uh, were kind of brought in with the Jews. But as time began to go, the Jews said, we don't want anything to do with these Christians. They're proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. They're causing us trouble. They're getting us into trouble with the Roman Empire. So the Jews started going to the Roman Empire and say, these people aren't Jews. These people are Christians. You need to come check them out because they're not doing what they should be doing. You see how this starts to develop. They're being handed over. They're being blasphemed and slandered and handed over, and the result is they're facing persecution. And so Jesus comes along, and he says, you are being blasphemed by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What's going on in that phrase? What's going on there is this argument that you see all throughout the New Testament about who is truly God's people. What does it really mean to be a Jew? What does it really mean to be part of one of God's people? And this debate begins to develop throughout the New Testament, and essentially it comes down to, are followers of Jesus really a part of God's people? Are they the true line of Israel? Are they true Jews? And there's this incredible divide that happens. And Jesus just calls the people back to himself. And he says, the name that you're given is not what's important. What matters is that you identify with me. Satan is the father of lies. You are not to be associated with lies. You're to be associated with me because I am truth. Now there's a little bit of caution that goes with this phrase because this phrase, synagogue of Satan, has been used by some extremist groups for terribly bad anti-Semitic rhetoric. It's been used by white supremacist groups for very racist rhetoric. It's, it's a phrase that's caught on in certain areas and has been used for purposes that it was never intended in this particular passage because this passage is directed to a minority group of people 
who are underneath this incredible totalitarian government, this incredibly evil government, and they're facing persecution. And Jesus is using this phrase to call them back to the truth. And we all need to be reminded of this. Because if we're not careful, what other people say about us will become more determinate in our lives than what Jesus says about us. Other people say things about us that are lies. And even though we know they're lies, they still set deep in our heart, they still sit deep in our mind, and those things begin to determine our identity, and we begin to listen to those lies. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what anybody says about you, what matters is that you look to me as truth, that you hear my word, that you hear what I have to say about you, and you trust in that. Number three, so they're poor, people are handing them over to the government officials, and that leads to imprisonment. But even if they're in prison, Jesus delivers us from our temporary fears. Look at number 10, look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now when it says the devil is about to cast you into prison, doesn't mean literally the devil. It means that these people who are doing this are on the side of Satan. They are enemies of God. Ephesians 6 talks about how our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and the powers of the dark order. That's what's going on here in this verse, that the devil is going to hand them over against the will of God so that they'll be imprisoned. And then there's this weird phrase that sneaks up there. It says, you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. When you get to the book of Revelation, number theories just go wacko. You can get all kinds of theories about what this number means and how it relates to this event over here. Generally speaking, a number in Revelation will either refer back to how the number was used in the ancient world, or more often, the number will refer back to something that happened in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on here. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Look what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. This is Daniel as he goes to the government authorities and says to be tested. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Kids, you guys probably know this story better than the adults in the room do. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And then in verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. When you get to Revelation chapter two, you don't have to make up some crazy theory about why it says, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. It's just referring back to the story of Daniel, to a story that they would have known about a group of people being tested in the midst of a hostile culture about whether or not they'll stay faithful to the Lord. That's it. That's exactly what's being said here. And Jesus is telling them, don't be afraid. Of course you're going to be tested. You're living for me in the midst of a world that doesn't love me. You're going to be tested, but it's going to be temporary. And at the end of it, your faith is going to come out stronger than it ever would have been before. And the reality is, that that happens in many different ways for us. That happens in ways here in America. Around the world, people are tested for their faith all the times in different ways. I want you to watch a quick minute and 30 second interview with a pastor in Nairobi, Kenya, 
as he talks about what it looks like to be tested for his faith and whether or not he's going to give in to that or whether or not he's going to continue to trust in the Lord and in the love of Jesus. Look at this quick video from this pastor. And when they came to me, I was holding my Bible. When I fell down and the Bible fell, they came to me, they insulted me, they took the man, they took the phone, they picked my Bible and told me, Pastor, never run away from us. We know you, so what you should do? You just hand over what you have. You know, God gives us the grace to help us to meet that level. Somebody could even do something to you and you even know, but for Jesus, they did worse. They even killed him. And Jesus is the one who's sending us. And they even say, if they persecuted me, sure, they will persecute you. So I'm just able to love them by the love that Jesus loves me. I love that last phrase that he gives there. I'm able to love them with the love that Jesus gives me. These people at the church in Smyrna, they're facing this incredible opposition. They're facing the reality that they're probably going to be tested. They're probably going to be sent to prison. They're probably going to face things that this pastor did. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then finally, the last point here. What is worse than imprisonment? What is worse than poverty? What is worse than being slandered? Well, the ultimate rejection is death. And Jesus says he will give us the faithfulness and he will give us the crown of life. Look at the end of verse 10. End of verse 10 says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Crown there is the word for the victor's wreath. If you... If you're excited like our family about watching the Olympics in a few weeks and you see the old pictures of the Olympic athletes wearing that wreath, that wreath is the same word that's being used here for crown. So don't think crown as in like a king's crown. Think of wreath as in a victor's wreath. So you will receive the reward, the victory of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus prepares his people for trouble. He says, in this world you're gonna have trouble, but look to me. You may be poor, you may be slandered, you may be tested and thrown into prison, you may even be killed. For your faith. And whether or not you're killed for your faith, we know that because of the penalty of sin that we all face death, but we don't face death without hope. We have hope through Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're wondering about what Christianity is about, remember this. Christianity is not about bad people acting nice. Christianity is about dead people coming to life. That we are dead in sin that we are separated from God because of our sin, but we are able to be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And I don't know what you're facing in your life. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Some of these things that we've talked about, 
losing money because of government persecution, losing your job, being handed over to authorities, being tested and thrown into prison. We don't know. We may live through that reality. There are brothers and sisters around the world who do live through that reality. But what's the call from Jesus? It's not to build a bunker. It's not to write a book. He says, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as the one who will never leave us. And God, that we are able to praise you because of your goodness and your faithfulness. And even when we wonder from you, even when we look back over the last few weeks and we think about those times that we were not faithful to you, that we have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And God, we bring a lot of guilt and a lot of pain and a lot of difficult circumstances into this room. And God, if there are people dealing with financial poverty, if there are people dealing with relationships in which others are telling lies about them and slandering them, if there are people whose faith is being tested to the point that they don't know if they really do believe, if they're really going to be able to hold on, God, I pray that they would make the decision to follow you, that they would look to Jesus the one who was the first and the last, who was dead and yet is living, and the one who is intimately related to all that we deal with, that he is victorious and we are able to have victory through him. So God, we give ourselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.